passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. As a church, we are preaching our way through the Gospel of Mark. We are in Mark chapter 6 today. I'd like to ask you to take out your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 6. This has been a very good study for us as we're preaching through the Gospel because each week it's Jesus and it's more of Jesus. And what could be better than spending every weekend with Jesus? So this is a good thing as we're working through this Gospel. We are specifically, oh, excuse me, thank you. Sorry, Stephen, just old habits. By the way, we're starting Children's Church today. And Stephen is in the back up there waving at me. If you are in children's church age, please go ahead and connect with Pastor Stephen. I think we, we have everybody, Stephen? All right. A couple more coming. Okay. I apologize for that, Stephen. It's just uh, old habits die hard. So, all right, guys. We'll see you at the end of the service. Bye-bye. And mom and dad go, (laughs) All right, we are in Matthew chapter, or Mark chapter 6, verse 7. And what we are going to find today is Jesus sends his apostles out on their first short-term mission trip. And short-term mission trips are good things. And we just had a short-term mission trip come back from New Orleans. And God does a lot of good work in those short-term mission trips. So let's go ahead and turn, uh, as I said, to Mark chapter 6. Stand out of reverence for God's Word. Follow along in your copy of God's Word. We're going to read through the second half of verse 6 to verse 13. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. And that ends the reading of God's Word, and you may be seated. As I mentioned, this is sort of the first short-term mission trip experience we have in the Bible. And what we find in this very little section is actually a number of guiding principles for missionaries and guiding principles for ministry. And these principles are oftentimes followed uh, later in the Bible. And these principles should be followed in missionary work and in ministry work today. Now, um, what I'd like to do is just begin by the first little verse uh, in, that's Mark chapter 6, verse 6, the second half, because what we find in Mark is there's always a little short introductory verse that gives us the setting or the background, and the rest of the verses after that sort of do the teaching. So let's begin with the background verse, which is, and he went out among the villages teaching. If you're taking notes, the key word for you to circle is the word he. Jesus is the one up to this point who has done all of the preaching. 
He's done all of the teaching. He's done all of the healings. He's the one that's answered every single question. For the first year and a half of Jesus' three years of ministry, Jesus does it all. Remember, there are crowds of over 10,000 people. This is Jesus solo pastoring a church of 10,000 people at one time. A major serious recipe for burnout, even if you are the Son of God. Now, you would think it would be wise for him to start to divide this up a little bit, maybe break it into smaller chunks and get some more staff on board and to help him out. And that's exactly what he's about to do. He's going to bring his apostles and he's going to begin to empower them to do more ministry. Realize that they have been with him now for 24 hours a day, seven days a week for the last year and a half. So at this time, they know Jesus pretty well. They know how he thinks. They know what he would say. When Jesus goes to different villages, no doubt he does the same sermons over and over again. He uses the same illustrations. So they've learned the sermons. They've learned the illustrations. This is all memorized in their head. And now is the point where they move from having a lot of information to on-the-field application. He's going to send them out on short-term mission work, as it were, to share the gospel that he has been sharing. They're going to come back, and then he's going to debrief with them on how that went and tune them up. And this is, by the way, the way it works if you go to seminary. In seminary, what they do is they give you about two to three years of lots of education and a lot of information. And usually at that point, when you, before you're done, they say it's time for you to do your internship, where you get involved in a church and you actually begin to do ministry and practice what you are learning. And then you go to an internship class where you debrief on how that is going and they try to polish you up and improve you a bit. So that pattern that you find in seminaries nowadays is actually just following Jesus' pattern of how he trained his apostles, how he raised them up and how he sent them up sent them out where you have about one and a half to two years of education information, and then it switched over to application. So that's the background of what Jesus is doing at this point, sending his apostles out. What I'd like to do as we work through the balance of these verses, I'd like to uh, make our points in simply an answer to one main question, and that main question is this. What does a faithful minister look like? Because these verses give us an apt description of what does a faithful pastor look like? What does a faithful missionary look like? What does it look like to be someone who is a faithful minister of God? And these verses will do a great job at answering that question. So here they are. We have eight points. In the last service, I only made it a six-point sermon. So we'll see if we make it all the way through. Number one, a faithful minister is called. It's called. We see this right at the beginning. He called the 12. Now, when it came time to send people out, he did not ask for volunteers. Notice that. He chose the apostles. He called the apostles. And this is a very important thing for us to realize. He chose the ones that he would send out and identify with. Now, they don't necessarily realize the importance of their calling at this point. They will ultimately become the foundation of the church. They will become the new leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. 
they will become the ones who write the books of the New Testament or the New Testament books were written in close association with them. So they are hugely important people, but they were chosen by Jesus. They just didn't happen to volunteer. I want you to understand that nothing has changed about the way God works. God is still in the process of calling people into ministry. He calls people to be pastors. He calls people to be missionaries. They don't choose to be pastors or missionaries because it didn't work out for them as a Starbucks barista, and they're trying just a different job. No, honestly, God calls people. Now, you wonder, how does this work? Obviously, when Jesus called His apostles, He verbally asked them and called them to follow Him. So how does He call people into ministry today? This is the best way I can describe it. God places a sense, a growing sense in your heart that you can find no contentment other than to be a pastor or missionary. It's not that you can do, you can't do anything else, but you cannot find contentment doing anything else because God has placed that burden in your heart. Years ago, when I was interviewing for different churches before I came to Crosswinds, I was interviewing at one church, and I remember the, the well-meaning guy in the interview committee had this question, and I've never forgotten it. He came to me and he said, if you could do anything, you can't be a pastor, but if you could do whatever you wanted to do, what would you do? And I looked at him like a dog that heard a whistle. I mean, if I could do something else, I would do something else. And it's not because I don't have any other skills. Some of you know that I, my undergraduate's in computer science. I used to work as a programmer for IBM. I worked as a programmer for AT&T Technologies. I have those skills, but God did not give me peace in that work. I just this constant growing sense that God kept saying to me, you need to preach the gospel. You need to open my word. You need to teach it in front of people. That is the only thing I could do that I found peace at in my heart. And it was God calling me into ministry. And there was this realization when I went into ministry, you know, it's okay. If there's three people in the congregation or there's 3,000 people in the congregation, it doesn't matter. I know that what I'm supposed to do is preach the word of God to whoever you choose to give me. And that's the only place that I can find contentment. And that's the same way it works for everyone who is a good and faithful minister or missionary today. They don't do that job because they volunteered and something else didn't work out. They do that job because that's the only place that God gives them peace because he has called them into that line of work. Number two, what do we find? A faithful minister is not a lone ranger. Notice it says here, and he began to send them out two by two. Faithful ministers do not fly solo. They always do their ministry in at least pairs. And there's very good reasons for that. Because when you're in ministry, you need support. You need protection. You need encouragement. Ministry is very hard work. 
So they always would go out as the dynamic duo. You have Batman and Robin. You have Paul and Barnabas. They always go out together. Now let me just translate this right across into practical life work. Oftentimes when you hear missionaries, they go out, they get sent to the field and they end up flying solo. And that is a very hard thing. Mission work is very hard work. It is lonely work. It is draining work. And when people who are, men, who are missionaries find themselves flying solo on the mission field without companionship, it's a recipe for burnout and for exhaustion. But the scriptures would seem to say that they're not supposed to go to the field and completely fly solo, right? They're supposed to go to the field at least with some companionship. They should go out and go in pairs. This doesn't just, uh, this pairing principle doesn't just apply to missionaries and the way they should be sent into the field, but it also applies to church planters, I believe. That if someone is planting a church, oftentimes it's the one person that plants the church and every single thing gets put on that one guy's back. And it's just far too much weight. A lot of people have a hard time making it, doing it all solo. And the scriptures would seem to say, you're not supposed to do it all solo. And I look down at even our uh, Spencer campus, which we are very thankful for. We're about ready to celebrate the fifth anniversary of the Spencer campus. And God has been very good. But I look back and I, you know, I meet with Pastor Jordan on a weekly basis and uh, I didn't realize the amount of work and the amount of stress that would be on his shoulders when he launched that campus and was especially on his shoulders for the first year. And thankfully, it was a campus where we consistently worked together. And Pastor Dave, when he was on board, and, and now Pastor Chris, that he's on board, constantly working with Jordan, providing support and encouragement. And I meet with him once a week to provide support, encouragement, and help. And we share resources because it's too much even at five years in, to can do the whole thing completely flying solo. And that's not God's plan. So faithful ministers are not lone rangers. The other thing we see is this. A faithful minister shares both parts of the gospel. Seeing in Luke chapter 9, verse 2, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Now, those of you who are pretty quick are going to say, wait a minute here, I thought we were preaching through Mark and you put a verse in there from Luke. Why did you do that? Mark is essentially the cliff notes. Mark is the shortest gospel. He gives us the least amount of information. But if you look at Luke and Mark, they have parallel passages. The same thing is recorded in them. And Luke and Mark often expand and give us more information. And so Luke chapter 9 verse 2 is actually the parallel passage. And we discover that they were sent out to proclaim the gospel. Proclaim literally means to, uh, to cry out and spread the good news. You see, in that day, they didn't have CNN they didn't have Fox News. Uh, that they, they got their news by a crier would come into town with the news of the day and he would proclaim the news in the city squares. And what they were sent out to do was to be criers to proclaim the news for Jesus Christ, the good news of what God has done, that he has sent his son who has died in their place 
for their sins. And if people would trust in him, they would be saved. This is the news, Acts 4.12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. But I want you to notice that is not the full extent of the message that they were to proclaim. They were to claim, proclaim both parts of the gospel. Because if you look in Mark chapter 6, and we go a little deeper into that, what do we find they were to say? And they, so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. They weren't just to tell people the good news of what God had done for them, but they were to call people to repent of their sin, to admit their sin, to own their sin, to see themselves as spiritually bankrupt. Romans chapter 7, Paul says, Why do I do what I don't want to do, yet I keep my, find myself doing it? I'm addicted to my sin. I'm enslaved to my sin. The gospel message that should be preached is that we are sinners by nature and by choice, and there's nothing we can do to save ourselves other than to call out to God and repent of our sin, that's one part, and then trust in Jesus Christ to save us from our sin. That's the other part. That's the full gospel message. Now, to be honest, today you will find most people preach half of the story. They don't preach the entire story because sin isn't sexy. Sin doesn't sell. Sin isn't fun to preach about. But we have to begin with sin so you can get to the good news of Jesus. You see, if you just throw somebody a, a, a life preserver, nobody's going to grab it unless they realize they're drowning. So we have to begin with the sin. Number four. A faithful minister, we find, shows compassion. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And you say, where do you get compassion out of that? Well, let's follow along for a little bit. The key word here is the word authority. Jesus delegated his power and he delegated his ability to cast out demons to his apostles at this point in the ministry. So no longer does it have to be Jesus doing all the work, because now the apostles are given ability by Jesus to do the work. And if we look at the parallel texts of Luke and Matthew, we find it wasn't just the ability to cast out demons that he gave them. Luke chapter 9, verse 1. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. Or you go to Matthew chapter 10, verse 8. To heal the sick, to raise the dead, cleanse lepers and cast out demons. So the miraculous powers and ability that Jesus had at this point, he has delegated that into his apostles before he sends them out so they can do the kind of works that Jesus did. Incidentally, these miraculous abilities that Jesus gave to the apostles was not just temporary only for the extent of this mission trip. It was a permanent thing that they possessed for their entire life. 
The scriptures tell us this. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12, the things that mark an apostle, or you can recognize an apostle by, what are they? Signs, wonders, and miracles. Everybody can't do these things. But Jesus' apostles could do those things because he delegated that power to them. Now we might ask, why did he give them these, uh, this miraculous power and ability? Two answers. Number one, these powers validated the gospel message. Imagine what it was like when the apostles, they pull into a town in pairs and they start telling people that the problem is sin. That's the problem in your life. And I have the answer. The answer is Jesus. Repent of your sin, trust in Jesus, and you will be saved. And a lot of people are going, sure, never heard of that before. Why should I believe you? But if you heal a couple sick people, raise a couple dead relatives, then people tend to take you pretty seriously. And they believe what you have to say. The other reason that he did this, and I should point this out, is that all of these miraculous signs are not random demonstrations of power. They're not random. They're all demonstrations of God's compassion on people. In other words, to demonstrate his power, Jesus didn't go, eh, tonight I'm just going to rearrange the constellations. Or I'm going to levitate a house for a while, guys, so you can walk under it. Those are just random demonstrations of power. All of these miraculous powers were to show compassion to people in need, people who had just lost a loved one, people who were suffering from demon possession, people who were desperately sick and dying. Jesus showed compassion. Now, the mark of uh, the false teachers, by the way, if you look at the, if you've traced your finger through the Gospel of Mark, you get further into it. Mark chapter 12 says that what false teachers are known for is taking advantage of people, in particular the poor. But the apostles were to be known for showing compassion to people, especially the poor. False teachers take advantage, and yet the apostles were to be compassionate. Well, Jesus' miraculous healing powers. We learned they were just limited to the apostles. They're not for everybody today. Nevertheless, the spirit of compassion that God's ministers are to have towards people is still true today. Faithful ministers and faithful pastors should be very compassionate to people especially to people who are suffering. Now, I was just talking with this with some of, my, some of my staff this week, trying to underscore with them the importance of, one of, the, of our ministry is not always information. Yes, it is information, but it's not always just that. We have to genuinely love and care for the people that God has put in Crosswinds Church. We are to lead the way in being compassionate and in showing compassion towards those in need. Now, as a pastor, do I do that perfectly? Absolutely not. I do that in a very flawed way. You guys have known me for about a decade now. You know that sometimes I fail to show compassion, and it's not because I desire that, but I just do. We all do that. Nevertheless, 
The charge to ministers is to lead the way in showing compassion to the people and that we as a church should be showing compassion to one another. Number five, a faithful minister trusts God to meet his needs. And he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, no credit cards, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. So the apostles, when they went on their short-term mission trip, were not allowed to bring a suitcase. They were to totally trust God to meet every single one of their needs. Why did Jesus insist on this? Remember what's going on. This is part of their training mission. There is something about training in nature that is going on here. What Jesus is trying to teach them is that they can trust God to meet all of their needs, even if they have to go without nothing for a period of time. He's teaching them the truth of Matthew 6, 31 through 33. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now at first when we read this, it sounds like this is a really bold version of church planting. Don't pray, don't plan, don't prepare, just go! And God will provide for all of your need. Don't you trust him? I mean, taken to its logical conclusion, I shouldn't pack lunch this week. I should just wait for God to provide and see who shows up with it. Something tells me I'm going to be skinny. But that's sort of what it seems to be saying. Now, before we get too far into this, you need to realize these really stringent, uh, should we call it no-pack stipulations, they only existed temporarily for a short period of time on this short-term mission trip. Jesus was not saying that every mission trip should be undertaken without prayer and preparation. Look what we find a little bit later in uh, the Bible. And he said to them, speaking, Jesus speaking to his apostles, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. And he said to them, now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. And from that point forward, what we find is that they were to prepare and they were to plan for the mission work that they would go on. So the question becomes, what was Jesus trying to teach them in this short-term mission trip where they were told to bring nothing, to have nothing, and then totally provide, or ask God to provide for their needs? Here's what we find out. Jesus was putting them in a temporary time of scarcity so they would learn that they could trust God to provide for their needs in those times. By facing a temporary short-term time of scarcity in the beginning 
of their ministry. They would know that if they faced temporary short-term scarcity later in their ministry, that God indeed would provide for their needs. One of the best things that we can go through is each of us facing a time, a short-term time, where the bottom drops out and we have nothing. Because in those times, you start to learn to pray like no other. You start to learn to trust like no other. And you see God start to provide for you in ways you never expected. Your faith is built. Your spiritual maturity is built. What happens is like Israel in the wilderness where you find God provides just enough manna for the day each morning as you go through those periods. And what Jesus was doing was that short-term period of scarcity at the beginning of the ministry. They would see how he would provide so they would be confident later in ministry where things got tough that he would continue to provide again. He did it in the past to do it again. Now, Cindy and I, my wife and I, we have faced some of these periods of short-term scarcity. Uh, for us, the times came when I was between work, had no paycheck coming in. And there were times where we were really desperately praying, Lord, where is the money going to come from to pay the bills? Where is the money going to come from to put food on the table to, to feed the kids? And it was amazing what would happen. I remember a check showed up from an old college roommate for four figures, just out of the blue. In answer to our prayer, God provided the money we needed to make ends meet that week and for the rest of that month. Even when we moved here, we were in a position about 60 days prior to that, we had no money left in the bank. We were at the end. And all of a sudden, there was a change in Cindy's father's life situation. He passed away unexpectedly. Cindy discovered that he left his money into her name exclusively. And all of a sudden, we ended up here, and we had money to buy a house. Just like that. God provided in answer to prayer. Now, we look back on that, and we say, if God provided during times of scarcity in the past, we are confident that if we face times of scarcity in the future, He will come through once again. He's faithful. You see how this works? This is one of the qualities of a faithful minister. Number six, a faithful minister is content with what God provides. And He said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. The apostles would pull into town. Most likely, the person who would accept them in the house that they would stay in was a person of average income, and an average family is where they would stay. But imagine what would happen when all of a sudden you started healing people miraculously, raising dead people. Could you imagine how popular they would become, and what would start to happen Oh, you don't want to stay in that house. Come on over to my house. We have a hot tub. And the next person, come over to my house. We have a swimming pool. And it's really tempting to have ministry success start to become a ladder to financial success. And Jesus told them not to accept those invitations, but simply to be content with the place that God had provided for them. 
This is one of the hallmarks of false teachers in the ancient world. False teachers would use ministry and speaking success as a ladder to financial success, constantly working their way up to nicer houses and nicer homes. And Jesus says, you don't do that. You just focus on being content with what I have given for you. Now for pastors, this can be a real challenge. I know pastors, they take a job in a small country church, but they take the job with the knowledge, I'm just waiting for the call from that big city church. Because really, I want to make a lot more money. Really, I want to live in a a much bigger house. And they're looking at ministry as a means of financial gain. And personally, I start to struggle with that. Now, can God move a pastor from one church to another? Of, Of course. But the driving reason to move should not be because simply I want a bigger house and a bigger paycheck. That's not the reason to change. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 5 says, Godliness is not a means to gain. My motto is, bloom where you are planted. Where God has put you is where you want to bloom. Now, the parallel passage in Matthew says it a little differently, and he adds some more information, which is very applicable. Matthew chapter 10, verses 8 through 10. You received without pay, so give without pay. Pastors should not be trying to put a price on their services. Could you imagine what it would be like with the apostles if they took their God-given gifts and now tried to monetize them? Oh, we'll cast out demons, but it'll cost you $5 a demon. Uh, We'll raise a dead relative, but that's $7.50. That way we, we have to make some money this way. But their gifts were not given to them to make money on the back of those gifts. Their gifts were given to them to show compassion for people and to share the gospel, not to get rich. And this applies to pastors and teachers today. Some pastors, sometimes you find popular pastors, they are out there trying to make a private fortune on books, on speaking engagements. Now, I'm not saying that a pastor's book should not cost money. Obviously, there's paper, there's editing, there's all kinds of work that needs to be paid for that goes into that. I'm not saying that a workman is not worthy of his hire. That's not my point. But my point is that pastors should not be trying to use their God-given gifts to make small personal fortunes. Just as inappropriate it would be for for the apostles to try and monetize their gifts, it's also inappropriate for a pastor to try and turn around and monetize his gifts simply to be rich. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10 says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And I can probably say that if you just think back on some of the bigger name preachers who have become very money-driven, they have ended up causing great deals of troubles and pain in their ministry because it's led them away. Now, this being said, I, I want to also point out that doesn't mean pastors should be should, <laughs> that doesn't mean pastors should avoid being paid. Second Corinthians chapter nine verse fourteen, Galatians chapter six verse six says pastors should be paid and they should be paid by their churches, but there's not to make 
try and make a small personal fortune off the back of people or the churches of people. Number seven, I have time to make it. Good. A faithful minister is discerning where he spends his time. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. The assumption here is that when the apostles go into some towns, the towns will not receive them, they will not accept them, they will not embrace the gospel, they will reject the gospel. The experience that they will have in some towns will be similar to what happened to Jesus when he went into his own hometown of Nazareth, where they tried to kill him after just one sermon should be encouraging to know that they rejected Jesus and they reject you. It's not just you they're rejecting. And this is also reminding us about the parable of the soils, that many times the issue is not the preacher. It's the hardness of people's hearts to receive the gospel message. And he says, if you find yourself in a place where they are hard against you and they are not receiving my works after you've been casting out demons in front of them, after you've been raising the dead in front of them, you know what you do? You just shake the dust off your feet and you move on. That is very important to understand. And this can apply to us today and for people who are pastors today. Folks, there are some churches, there are some places that can be very hard against the gospel. When they reject preachers who are trying to preach the gospel and make it very difficult. And this tells us, you know, if you find yourself in a place where it doesn't fit and it's not, you're not being able to get progress for the gospel ministry, you know what it's okay to do? Move on. Go someplace where the soil is acceptable to the gospel message. Don't keep casting the gospel on concrete where it never will penetrate. Maybe God will use somebody else to reach that place, but it's not you at this time. It's okay. Now, folks, I've experienced this. I've been in churches where I've preached from the Bible, like I do with you, and I've preached through that, and I remember the kind of responses to those messages. Why are we always preaching from the Bible? Well, we don't have more of these other kind of messages. I like Joel Osteen. And then I've taken the exact same messages and come to a different church, preach the exact same ones, and people are going, oh, I love it. Finally, somebody who's teaching the Word of God, that's what my heart needs. The pastor didn't change. It was the hearts of the people that changed. If you find yourself in a place that is very hard against the gospel and God hasn't given you reason to stay, it's okay. Just move on. Last point. A faithful minister is obedient when the calling is costly. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. And it doesn't sound particularly significant. I mean, they just did what Jesus told them to do. But here's what's insightful. You go to the parallel count in Matthew. Right after this, there are 26 verses where Jesus tells them the hardships that they are going to face in that short-term mission trip if they are obedient. In other words, guys, it's going to be hard and it's going to be costly. 
but a faithful minister went forward and shared the gospel anyway. That's what they did. Now, this passage is just dripping with truths about what it means to be a faithful missionary, what it means to be a faithful pastor, what it means to be a faithful minister of the gospel. Let me run through these as we get ready to sing. Number one, they are called by God. They didn't just volunteer for the job. Number two, they're, alone, they're not a lone ranger. They don't fly solo. Number three, they share the whole gospel, not just part of it. Number four, they are filled with compassion towards people in need. Number five, they trust God to meet their needs. Number six, they are content with what God has provided. Number seven, they are discerning where they spend their time. And lastly, they're obedient, even when the calling is costly. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for these principles for ministry that are timeless that apply not just to this first mission trip, but apply to ministry and missionaries today. And I pray that you would help us to take what we can learn from this and apply it to our lives in the areas of ministry you've called us as well. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.